This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Welcome to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. I, of course, am your host, David Dole, and coming up on today's show, a new survey shows that the majority of Canadians agree with higher taxes on the wealthiest. I'll take your calls on that in the next segment. Also, the Doug Ford government is making a dramatic change to the autism program that has outraged parents. And later on in the show, Pharmacare for All, why it's the only sensible way forward in dealing with the cost of medicine. All that and more coming up on the David Dole Show. But first, there is a massive scandal unfolding right now involving the Prime Minister's office and Montreal-based construction giant SNC-Lavalin. Now, the situation is uh, complex, but I'm going to break it down here. But before I even get there... I think people need to understand why this matters, because oftentimes we hear stories like this and we wonder, why is this being reported on? Like, why should I care about this? In this case, for me anyways, I think this shows who our liberal party works for. And on that same note, this also means that the conservative party isn't off the hook either. But I'll get to all that. So let me first break this down, because it is this story is a little complicated, but once you hear the timeline... It all begins to uh, make sense. So Montreal-based construction giant SNC-Lavalin is uh, currently facing fraud and corruption charges in connection with their work in Libya between 2001 and 2011. And that legal case is currently in the preliminary hearing stage. Now, if convicted, SNC-Lavalin could be blocked from government contract work for the next 10 years. So, of course, the CEO complained about the charges. Reports from uh, December had SNC-Lavalin CEO complaining that a failure to, quote, reach a negotiated settlement on the corruption charges has cost the company more than $3.7 billion. Now, <laughs> I laugh at this because this is like a, a used car salesman complaining about being caught in legal trouble after rolling back the odometer and selling you a lemon. I mean... These people think they are above the law because they have money and power. So we have to make sure they understand that they are not above the law. So in a fair and just society, SNC-Lavalin would have to face serious repercussions if convicted of their actions. But in the real world, where corporations rule us, Trudeau allegedly felt the pressure to comply with corporate interests. So the Globe and Mail broke the story reporting that former Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould was moved to Veterans Affairs in mid-January due to her unwillingness to negotiate a deal with SNC-Lavalin, deciding to instead move forward with the fraud and corruption charges. Now, the Prime Minister denies that his office directed her to negotiate a deferred prosecution agreement, which would stop the criminal trial and allow SNC-Lavalin to get away with their uh, illegal action by basically only paying a fine. Now, uh, but because... The prime minister's office did not uh, direct uh, the justice minister on on what to do, or at least he claims he did not direct her. That doesn't mean that they didn't try and influence her. So listen to how uh, Justin Trudeau carefully uses the same line to avoid answering a question about potential influence. But the question is whether there was any sort of influence. Are you saying categorically there was absolutely no influence or any pushing whatsoever in this? The allegations reported in the story are false. 
Uh, at no time did I or uh, my office uh, direct uh, the current or previous Attorney General uh, to make uh, any particular decision in this matter. But not necessarily direct, Prime Minister. Was there any sort of influence whatsoever? As I've said, at no time did we uh, direct the Attorney General, uh, current or previous, uh, to uh, take any decision whatsoever in this matter. Now, does that sound like a legal answer or what? I mean, he directly avoided answering the question. The question was, was there any potential influence on the justice minister? And then he replies saying, oh, we did not uh, direct her to do anything. No, was there influence? Uh, we did not direct her to do anything. Yeah. So already the pieces here are falling into place. Now, there's even more. So, I mean, this is really just scratching the surface. So add to this the public letter that Wilson-Raybould issued after she was shuffled to Veterans Affairs and well before the allegations of the prime minister's interference. So this is a, a, a public letter that after, uh, after Wilson-Raybould was, was moved to, to Veterans Affairs, she put out a public letter that in part said, quote, it is a pillar of our democracy that our system of justice be free from even the perception of political interference and uphold the highest levels of public confidence. Now, when this came out, people were wondering, why is she releasing this? I mean, why is she saying this? What's, what's the point of this? Well, it's starting to make sense now. So it appears that she was maybe uh, covering her tracks and uh, showing us that she was actually on the correct side of this issue before being shuffled uh, around to, to Veterans Affairs. Now, on top of that, uh, Wilson-Raybould is also refusing to directly answer questions about these allegations. But it goes even deeper. <laughs> so on top of all of this, NDP parliamentary leader Guy Courant drew a link between the allegations leveled against the prime minister's office and the illegal political donations that SNC-Lavalin has made to the liberals in the past, saying, quote, SNC-Lavalin illegally gave more than $110,000 to the Liberal Party and its writing associations. Today, SNC-Lavalin needs a helping hand because they are in trouble. And he also pointed out that the company uh, has lobbied the government more than 50 times in the past two years. So just to reiterate, just to break down the timeline here, SNC-Lavalin is charged with fraud and corruption. The CEO complains about it to the papers in December. Then in January, Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould, clearly unmoved by the CEO's cries, is shuffled uh, by the Prime Minister to Veterans Affairs. The now former Justice Minister releases a public letter discussing how important it is for our justice system to remain free from even the perception of political interference. Then last week, the story breaks claiming that former uh, Justice Minister was being pressured to take it easy on SNC-Lavalin. And Trudeau then denies that he directed the Justice Minister to do anything, but won't deny that there was some influence on her. And this is all over a company which, again, has illegally given more than 110 thousand dollars to the liberal party and its writing associations in the past which is really a, a separate legal matter from the fraud and corruption charges that the story is about now it's also worth noting again that the uh snc lavalin would lose their ability to compete for government contracts if they are convicted of these charges so understand here you could make the argument that trudeau is trying to protect jobs but again 
Why are we allowing companies to get so big that they are essentially able to break the law and then get away with a slap on the wrist? This is an issue. This has been a serious issue in the U.S., and we are now seeing the beginnings of that here as well. So this is simply showing us that a corporation is willing to break the law if they know they can get away with it. Now, how does the conservative party fare in this? So this is clearly, I mean, a, a liberal scandal. I, I don't want to you know, distract you with, with other parties here. But you have to understand that, you know, Scheer, who's lobbying or, or who's lobbying all these uh, all these insults at, at the liberals are. I mean, <laughs> his position is the exact same, except he would have actually gotten away with it. So there are reports out claiming that uh, Tory leader Andrew Scheer met with the head of SNC-Lavalin to discuss the criminal charges and that the details included his potential support for a deferred prosecution agreement, which, again, is exactly what the prime minister's office is reported to have attempted to get the former justice minister to pursue, which would have allowed SNC-Lavalin to get away with a simple fine amounting to a slap on the wrist. So I ask you, how is the Conservative Party any better here? In, if, if they were running the government right now, if we had a conservative majority instead of a liberal majority, this would never have come out. This would never have been a story because the justice minister would have supported the deferred prosecution agreement. But in our case, we actually had a principled justice minister in Jody Wilson-Raybould who was not willing to allow this company to get off the hook simply because they were a large company. So again, we have to understand how corporations are taking control of our government. If we break the law, if you or me break the law, we have to face consequences. But if these companies, if these companies break the law in the way that SNC-Lavalin, again, these are just, I can go even deeper into the countless uh, charges that have been laid against SNC-Lavalin, but just in this case, they are clearly uh, worried that if this were to go to a conviction that they would lose and they would lose their government contracts for the next 10 years. So understand here, we have a government in the Liberal Party that is not much different, at least in terms of uh, economic issues and their ability to listen to corporations over people, than the Conservative Party. So the Liberal Party has used cultural issues like gender equality to pretend that they are somehow progressive. But with the alleged willingness of the Prime Minister's office to give SNC-Lavalin a slap on the wrist, for the kind of charges that would put any average individual in jail, it shows us that just like the Conservative Party, the Liberal Party puts the best interests of massive corporations above all else. Coming up next, a new poll shows that Canadians are ready to tax the wealthiest at higher rates. Do you agree that the wealthy need to start paying their fair share? Give me a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. This is The David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. The David Dole Show continues on News Talk 1010. Welcome back to The David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. 
Now, before I get to the uh, next story, I did get a, a text about the last story, which was about um, SNC Lavalin and uh, Trudeau, and my comparison saying that uh, the Conservative Party would have gotten away with it because they put corporations first, just as Trudeau was doing in this situation. Uh, this text says that uh, Sheer op openly stated that he would stand against political interference. Well, he can say that because when your entire philosophy as a party puts corporations first, yeah, you don't have to politically interfere. Because your justice minister would have done the, the thing that you wanted them to do to begin with, which is the, the deferred action settlement. So you have to understand here that this is not uh, – <laughs> I'm not trying to uh, play partisan politics here. I'm simply saying what the philosophy of these parties are. The Liberal Party and the Conservative Party puts the interests of large multinational corporations first. So if they can get away with a slap on the wrist, then they'll do that. Now uh, – Moving on, a new ECOS research poll shows that a majority of Canadians support raising taxes on the wealthiest individuals. Now, do you agree with most Canadians or do you disagree? Give me a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. So let me go a little more into, this, uh, into the data here. So this uh, ECOS research poll uh, asks the question, or the, the first question is, the top marginal tax rate in Canada is about 50%. In 1971, this was approximately 80%. To what extent would you support or oppose taxing all income over $1 million at 70%? And 50% of Canadians support this. And then you have 22% neither support nor oppose, and 26% oppose it. So that's on the 70% uh, tax bracket. On the wealth tax, so this is the, the second question here, uh, a wealth tax is a tax based on the total value of all the assets that someone owns, including bank accounts, real estate, business ownership, and stocks. Canada currently does not have a wealth tax. To what extent would you support or oppose introducing a 2% wealth tax on all personal assets over $50 million and a 3% wealth tax on all personal assets over $1 billion? Now, Canadians... Definitely support this one. So 69% of Canadians support a wealth tax, with 11% uh, saying uh, neither support nor oppose, and 17% opposing. Now, it's hard to imagine that all, all the people in that 17% have uh, money over 50, or have assets over 50 million, uh, or assets over 1 billion. So these are people that either think they're going to one day make 50 million, or uh, believe that these people should keep their money, which is an argument I would love to hear if you have that. If you think that wealthy people should be able to keep all their money over $1 billion, over $50 million, please give me a call. Uh, I want to hear your argument. Um, so give me a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. Also, though, if you do agree with this, and I think as we see from this poll, most Canadians do, I also would like to hear uh, your thoughts on this. Now, um, there are different types of, of taxation, right? So there's regressive taxes, which hurt the middle and lower income people most, which is something like a, a sales tax. So, I mean, when we talk about taxes, we have to really look at this from a, a nuanced perspective. Some taxes make more sense than others. I think a sales tax, by and large, is not good. It hurts most people, most individuals. So say you make... 30 grand a year. You're paying the same tax on a bottle of Pepsi that somebody who who makes 50 million a year does. So to me that just doesn't make a lot of sense. 
It doesn't make sense to tax people to the in the sense where they are regressive taxes, where they hurt people that are lower income and uh, and middle class the most. But there's also actually even in addition to that. So we also have fines. Fines are working a, a very similar way. So I believe it's actually Sweden that that has fines where it depends on how much your income is. So say you're you're caught speeding. The fine you have to pay is actually based on your wealth. So uh, if you make, say, you know, a million dollars a year, you're going to pay more in a fine for speeding than somebody that makes 30 grand a year. And I think that makes sense because if you're making, you know, a lot of money, speeding isn't a big deal to you. You're like, all right, fine, I'll pay the, t- I'll pay the ticket. But if, if you get caught speeding and you're poor, I mean, again, it's like different rules for the wealthy compared to everybody else. But... On top of uh, regressive taxation, we also have taxes that I think are good, which is progressive taxation. So progressive taxation is, uh, in my opinion, it creates a more equitable society and allows us to fund things like schools and transit and also shows us that no one is above the law. So it allows our system to be more equitable in the sense that you have the rich kids going to the same schools as the poor kids. And it not only benefits us in terms of our ability to to uh, generate revenue and and pay for better schools, for example, but it also benefits us culturally. Having the rich kids go to school with the poor kids allows the rich kids to develop more empathy for people who are not as lucky as they are. Now, again, what are your thoughts on this? Do you support a wealth tax or a new 70% tax bracket? Give me a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. Now, the reason why this has become a, a larger discussion more, more recently is because of, I mean, like a lot of issues, we get a lot of news from the U.S. So in the U.S. right now, you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is uh, supporting a 70% top marginal tax rate, which may sound crazy to a lot of people. But if you go back to the 50s under a Republican president, Eisenhower, the top marginal tax rate was 90%. So... 90% compared to 70%, I mean, 70 doesn't sound too bad anymore. Um, and again, so this is under Eisenhower, a Republican, and that was also the last time that a Republican president balanced the budget. So you can imagine that that 90% top marginal tax rate helped with that. So we have a call here from uh, Sarah. Sarah, what are your thoughts? Oh, hey, um, I just wanted to say that I'm 100% for taxing the wealthy. I can't imagine why Canadians would say that, you know, if you make over a billion dollars, you uh, should be able to uh, hoard all your wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like just basic things that happen nowadays. Like, you know, there was a report where there were over 3,000 like files in the CRA um, where Canadians had their money like stashed away um, through the Panama Papers. Like, why should 3,000 cases of, like, Canadian, like, why should there be, you know, 3,000 files of Canadian people not paying taxes? It's just, to me, like, you know, if you and I are paying taxes, like, why is it if you're, you know, someone like Justin Trudeau's friend, Stephen Bronson, who, you know, is also a fundraiser for him, um, can easily store, you know, his taxes elsewhere where, you know, we, we, the rest of the public can't. Um, Mm -hmm. So I definitely think, you know, the wealthy should be um, should be paying much more taxes, and there should be, you know, um, more oversight and 
oversight, especially when it becomes when it comes to wealthy people, because you know, like you know, everyday middle class and working class people get taxed just as much, and it's just mm-hmm. to me incredibly not fair. Great point, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so I agree with Sarah there, and she brought up uh, some great points. So tax havens. So when you allow the wealthiest people to hoard all this money, you know what they do? They put it overseas, and they don't pay any tax on it whatsoever, and they get away with it. So if we continue to allow this, look, it's not about – this is the the uh, the mischaracterization that, that people have on this. They think, oh, you're – you're simply uh, you're attacking the wealthy people. You're attacking the job creators. That's not what this is. This is creating an equitable society. I'm not I'm not anti people making money. I'm anti inequality. So when you have a certain class of people who essentially are able to live in these gated communities, separate themselves from the rest of society, put their kids in schools that that in private schools that they pay for, remove themselves from any ability to pay tax on their uh, exorbitant wealth. What that ends up doing is it takes away from the rest of us, and it creates this system where you have people that are separated from the reality that everybody else lives in, which is why I think, again, it's so important that, that wealthy kids go to the same schools as poor kids and that the wealthiest are forced to actually pay their fair share in taxes because it allows us – it's not only a, an issue of creating, uh, of creating revenue and putting back into the system, it's also – a cultural benefit, the cultural benefit of having people develop empathy for others who are not in their same situation. A lot of the wealth that we have now is inherited wealth. I mean, just look at the people who are leading, like Doug Ford, inherited wealth, Donald Trump, inherited wealth. These are people who do not know what life is like for the average person because they never had to know. They were born into wealth. They inherited their business. So for them to understand how the rest of us live it's just not realistic. Now there are, you know, the, there are some wealthy people out there that did start from nothing, and they do have empathy and understand and remember what it was like uh, for them back then and support this sort of taxation. But for those people, especially who were born into wealth, I mean, I almost don't blame them because if you don't experience it yourself, if you don't experience those hardships, then you don't really understand what life is like for most people. Now. I just want to mention, too, I mean, on the opposite side of, of uh, this idea of, of higher taxes for the rich, you have someone like Doug Ford who canceled a planned surtax on the wealthiest Ontarians. Now, this is a surtax that would have generated $275 million in revenue. And this is at a time when he's complaining about the deficit. So he's cutting taxes for the wealthiest while complaining that we don't have enough money to run programs. Now... I mean, this is just disgusting. So we have to understand here, when you put people in power who have never understood what life is like for the average person, you can't expect them to govern in a way where they're going to help the average person. Deficits are not a spending problem. They are a revenue problem. So you have to raise taxes on the wealthiest and stop handing out tax breaks to large, highly profitable companies. Coming up next, the Ford government is making dramatic changes to autism funding, and parents aren't happy about it. If this is impacting you, give me a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. This is The David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010.
listening to The David Dole Show, News Talk 1010. Welcome back to The David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Now, before I get to the uh, the next story here, I want to go back and, and read a text from uh, uh, that I got here about the last story, which was about a wealth tax. So uh, just to reiterate, most Canadians support uh, uh, higher taxes on the wealthiest. Now, I got a text saying that uh, they always argue billionaires create jobs. But let's remember how many jobs have been shipped overseas and many other jobs will be automated. Exactly. So these billionaires have not made money, or a lot of them have not made their money by being job creators. They've made their money by shipping jobs overseas, paying barely anything to the people that are actually creating them uh, the wealth, and then at the same time have also been putting their money in tax havens so they even pay uh, even less in taxes and keep all their money. And also remember, people like Jeff Bezos, so you know the, the richest man in the world, or at least one of the richest men in the world, Jeff Bezos had to be guilted by Bernie Sanders into paying his employees a proper wage. So it wasn't until Bernie Sanders introduced the Stop uh, Jeff Bezos Act, or sorry, the Stop Bezos Act, which uh, Bezos stand uh, for something else, but essentially it was aimed at uh, making, uh, shaming Jeff Bezos into actually paying his employees properly. So it wasn't until Bernie Sanders introduced that bill that Jeff Bezos finally responded about uh, two weeks later and announced that he would be raising uh, all of his employees' wages. So... When you have billionaires that have all this wealth and they have to be guilted into paying their employees properly, the people that are making them their money, I mean, you have to understand that you need laws in place that protect the people that are essentially everybody that aren't millionaires and billionaires, which is the vast majority of us. Now, moving on to the next story, though. An estimated 40,000 children in Ontario have autism a developmental disorder affecting social interaction and communication. Now, 2,400 of them are waiting for a diagnosis, 23,000 are on a wait list for behavioral therapies, and only 8,400 are receiving services. So now the Ford government has announced that uh, they have an overhaul to the autism program, but many parents are not happy about it. So listen to these parents of autistic kids react to the appearance of PC MPP Lisa McLeod who serves as the Minister of Children, Community, and Social Services, and has said that she stands unapologetically by the autism funding changes. This is absolutely inappropriate. Guys, hey, you have a you're cutting my son from 40 hours a week to two. He can't live well, on two. This is a disaster. You've created a crisis, Lisa. You've you have 23,000 children. A new crisis. You're not going to do anything. A new crisis, Lisa. What about my That's Will. Full-time. Isn't it beautiful? He is. You're throwing it out like a hot potato. I have to take him out of his school because he doesn't have any more support. So forget about Will. Will's useless now. Is that what you're telling us? Now, that was the sound of parents that are justifiably angry at what this Ford government is doing to the autism program. Now, before I get into the details, uh, I want to say that if you are impacted by these changes, give me a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. Now, the Ford government is aiming to uh, clear an autism therapy wait list of 23,000 kids. So instead of investing more into the program, they are overhauling it completely, giving parents the funding directly and the power to choose the services they want. Now, on the face of it, it sounds good, right? I mean, you have more choice. You get the money directly. Sounds like a, a great solution here. But the families will face a lifetime limit, uh, limit 
of $140,000 per child, and families with annual incomes of above $250,000 will no longer be eligible for funding. Now, your annual income should not impact your child's ability to receive support for autism services, and the $140,000 cap will not be enough for many parents. Now, in the, in the previous segment, I talked about how I support a wealth tax. But when I'm talking about the wealthy, I mean, I'm not talking about people making 250 grand. I don't, look, you're, you're upper middle class. You are not the wealthy people that are hiding your, or stashing your, your money in, in tax havens. So if you're making 250 to, uh, uh, say, a million, a lot of these families, they're going to be out in the cold. And it's not that easy to come up with the money needed to be able to uh, put their their children into these uh, autism uh, therapy programs. Now, Laura Kirby uh, McIntosh, president of the Ontario Autism Coalition, also spoke out against the funding cap, telling the Canadian press that intensive therapy can cost between sixty thousand and eighty thousand a year, which of course means many families will not be able to afford afford the treatment they need with the hard cap at one hundred and forty thousand dollars. Now, again, if you are impacted by these changes, give me a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. Now, the province claims the reforms of the autism program is designed to clear the unfair and punishing wait list and provide equality and sustainability to the program so that more families of children and youth with autism can receive service. But critics say it'll cause more issues. So, I, I mean... Here's a good indication of how terrible this Doug Ford plan for autism is. A PC political staffer and father of two autistic uh, teens quit in disgust over the changes. The staffer, Bruce McIntosh, is the former president of the Ontario Autism Coalition. And in reaction to these changes, he said, quote, In light of today's announcement, I told my minister I did not feel I could continue in my role as legislative assistant. And he joined the progressive conservative uh, uh, MPP Amy Fee's political staff when the Ford government was elected last spring. Now, when a staffer in your own party, who is a father of autistic teens, has worked uh, and has worked to improve the way autism is handled in the system, resigns from your own party over this, that should tell you something. So this is a story where Again, I mean, you have Doug Ford cutting taxes for the wealthiest at $275 million. So you have that at the same time that he is uh, overhauling the autism program. And instead of putting uh, more funding into the existing program, he's completely overhauling it and putting caps on what parents can actually uh, be able to, to use and afford to help their children. I just don't know how anybody can defend this. I mean, when you have a staffer on the progressive conservative uh, party, when, when you have a staffer leave over this because he has a direct connection to autism, because he has kids who have autism and he understands what parents actually need, there is absolutely no way anybody can defend this. Now, since we have a few more minutes in this segment, I do want to also just briefly mention here that there is... Another issue that Doug Ford is potentially causing, and it's, there, uh, it's around renting. So there is a major uh, housing crisis in Toronto. Uh, rent for one- and two-bedroom apartments 
are the highest in the country. And the Doug Ford government is floating the idea of private eviction enforcement. Again, another move that does not benefit the vast majority of people, but in fact benefits the people that already own property, that already have money. So the Toronto Star obtained internal documents showing the government is considering the use of private bailiffs to evict tenants out of their homes. And they want to make it easier for landlords to evict tenants by making waiting periods for eviction notices shorter. Internal documents show that Doug Ford is considering shortening the waiting period for eviction orders from 11 to 6 days. Now, currently only, pub uh, only public services known as public enforcement officers can remove tenants once an eviction is ordered. Now, the reason for the change is that by contracting it out, it may save money. But again, for who? So the public enforcement officers are public servants and are sworn to uphold the public good and are only accountable to the public. They point tenants who have nowhere else to live to go to shelters and community services. So who does this benefit? Again, when you have private, <laughs> private individuals that, that are able to evict people from their homes instead of people that are publicly accountable, who is that going to benefit? It's going to benefit the people that have the money. Now, critics of this private eviction enforcement include uh, NDP housing critic uh, Susie Morrison, who said, uh, quote, at a time when the rising cost of housing is making it harder for Ontario families to find a place they can afford and keep a roof over their heads, Doug Ford's conservatives are focused on helping landlords toss tenants out on the street faster, putting evictions ahead of helping more families find and afford a decent place to live is a badly misplaced priority. Another uh, critic is uh, City Councillor Mike Layden, who on Twitter said, In a city with 1% vacancy, this is very dangerous. Landlords already illegally evict tenants through uh, reno evictions and sleazy claims, all in the name of profit. Shame on Ontario Conservatives for helping them ruin people's lives. And how does this possibly boost rental housing? So again, we have a Ford government who completely overhauls the autism program that is making it worse, while at the same time, cutting taxes for the wealthiest and creating a, an eviction system that benefits landlords over people. Coming up next, why Pharmacare for All is the only sensible solution to dealing with the cost of prescription medication. This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the David Dole Show on News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. According to reports, Justin Trudeau's liberals will propose a limited expansion to the country's universal health care system in the spring budget to cover part of the cost of prescription drugs, a move that has now freed Jagmeet Singh and the NDP up to pursue something more substantial. So this week, Singh officially announced that the NDP government will pursue a Pharmacare for All plan. Now, if you think Pharmacare for All is crazy, oh my God, we can't afford that. Well, you're in the same boat as people who thought universal health care was crazy before Tommy Douglas led the charge for it in the 60s. Now, the debate about Medicare for All in the U.S., I think, 
should wake us up to the reality that we love, or I should say, <laughs> we support a universal healthcare system. We would love it more if it was more properly funded. But we support uh, a universal healthcare system because we can't, I mean, imagine opening it up to uh, private insurance only. So in the U.S. right now, there are 45,000 uh, deaths a year due to a lack uh, of an ability to afford health care. And the most common form of bankruptcy are medical bankruptcies. So Canadians know better, but we deserve more comprehensive coverage. And in fact, Canada is the only developed country in the world with a universal health care system that does not cover essential prescription medication. So it's my view that families should not be forced to make decisions between their medication and food or rent. So with the universal pharmacare system, the federal government will become the primary price negotiator and purchaser of prescription medication, as opposed uh, to Canadians purchasing their prescriptions individually from suppliers at a set cost. Now, how do we know, though, that this is a great idea? Uh, all you have to do is look at the reaction from private business. So look at how pharma companies are reacting to this. We were supposed to have new drug price rules uh, last month. So not, I mean, not PharmaCare for all, just, just new restrictions on drug prices last month. But the rules were delayed, and Health Canada won't explain why. But experts are saying it's because of the pushback from Big Pharma. So according to a CBC report, government and industry documents reveal that the powerful U.S. pharmaceutical lobby group known as Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America has taken an interest in what's happening with Canada's drug policy and are actively lobbying our government to not address the cost of pharmaceuticals. And it's no secret why they're pushing back. Under a Pharmacare for All plan, we would have the purchasing power of a single payer for prescription medications, meaning we would take advantage of lower prices for pharmaceuticals, which is how similar Pharmacare systems in other countries achieve huge savings. So, for example, as the NDP lays out, quote, look at the drug Lipitor. In Canada, one year's supply of the brand name pharmaceutical costs at least $811, whereas in New Zealand, where the public authority negotiates the price on behalf of all New, uh, New Zealanders, a one-year supply of the brand name pharmaceutical costs only $15. These savings are also seen for generic versions of prescription medications as well. Now, it is estimated that a universal pharmacare program would save Canadians around $4.2 billion every year. Now, how does the NDP propose to pay for their pharmacare for all plan? Well, close the tax loopholes and build a fairer tax system. So as we were discussing in a previous segment, the vast majority of Canadians support taxing the wealthiest at higher rates, including a wealth tax on anybody making over $50 million or uh, an even higher tax on anybody making over $1 billion. Now, how many of you listening fit into that? I'm going to imagine not many, if any of you. So... Understand here, you are not, I'm sorry to say this, you are not going to one day become a billionaire. I mean, the odds are against you. And even if you were, the hope is you would be generous enough or empathetic enough, aware enough to understand that paying higher taxes benefits society as a whole and in the end would benefit you 
as well. So the super rich in Canada avoid paying their fair share in taxes by using tax loopholes and stashing their money in offshore tax havens. And we have to get away from that. So uh, for those of you that say, though, that I already have prescription drug coverage at work, why should I support Universal Pharmacare? Well, you may have coverage, but 700,000 Canadians have no prescription drug coverage at all. And many of these people work lower paid jobs or have precarious employment. So, I mean, in my case, I'm self-employed. So as somebody who is self-employed, I don't have pharmacare covered. I don't have dental covered, which is a whole other issue that, I, that we should get into at some point. But we, ha we need to have a more comprehensive healthcare system. Now, before I get to uh, potentially a more comprehensive system that another country is maybe going to have one day, I also want to mention, though, that the Green Party also has a national pharmacare plan. And I think both parties can work together on this. So this is not just, you know, an NDP thing. The, the Green Party and the NDP both agree that we need pharmacare for all. Now, as I was uh, alluding to uh, in just a few seconds ago, Bernie Sanders and his Medicare for All plan is actually more comprehensive than Canadian healthcare. So Bernie's Medicare for All plan would cover pharmacare as well as dental care and everything else, essentially except for uh, elective procedures like plastic surgery, for example. So this is, <laughs> this is a situation where if, if, we're, if uh, the U.S. is faced with a, a Bernie Sanders presidency, and look, I'm crossing fingers, I, I hope they are, because they need a, a real shift in what they're experiencing right now, the U.S. could potentially have, one day, a better healthcare system than we currently do. So how about we uh, <laughs> lead by example here and show the U.S. how it's done and pass a Pharmacare for All plan. And also, I think, universal dental care, which some may argue is, I mean, even more important. Now, one of the big issues as well when it comes to these sorts of uh, uh, programs is, I mean, as I said, I'm self-employed, so I don't, I don't have dental care. But a lot of people who feel like they, they may need their, their dental coverage, they'll stick to an employer that, or, or stick to a job that they may not even want. And they, they stay there because they have uh, certain things covered through their, their private insurance that's offered through the employer. And you see that especially in the U.S. So people in the U.S. that don't have health care outside their employer, they're stuck in these jobs that they don't want. And they're stuck in them because they're afraid they may lose health coverage if they go somewhere else. You can follow me on Twitter at David Dole, last name spelled D-O-E-L, and visit me on YouTube at therationalnational.com. I cover both Canadian and American politics there. Thanks for listening to The David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010.